and welcome to Smashed Prawns in a Milky Basket, a podcast about the work of comedy writer, performer, director, and all-round genius, Julia Davis. I'm Sophie Davis, no relation, and on each episode, I'm joined by a guest to talk about a different show created by Julia Davis. This is part two of my conversation with Emily Benita about Nighty Night Series 1, so if you haven't already listened to part one, please go back and listen to that one first. So episode two, to sum up, this is the one with the sex shop, the girly shopping trip and the horrific dinner party at Jill's. So if we start with the sex shop, I love how she's like browsing and she sees Glenn sort of through the pants, doesn't she? Yes. <laughs> Spying through the ouvert mm. of the uh, crotchless panties, yes. And of course, it's quite awkward because she's ditched him at the restaurant and she says to him, oh, you know, I, I had diarrhea. And he says, well, I did wait until closing time. And she's like, I filled the bowl twice over. <laughs> doesn't contain ex- anything, any singular word that's disgusting, but as a combination, it's just totally foul. <laughs> and Glenn says to her, um, oh, I, I must admit, Jill, I had several suicide attempts before I met you. And she's like, oh, what, this morning? <laughs> Just, I feel like pretty much every conversation they have is just gold. Like she just misunderstands everything that he says, but he says the most ridiculous things anyway. And and she's trying to put him off and he's just not getting it. Like he says, oh, you know, I know I'm not your ideal man. And she's just immediately like, no, (laughs) no, you're not. (laughs) She says to try and sort of throw him off. Oh, I think I might be a lesbian as well. I've I've had patches. And he's like, I want to to try and stop it. (laughs) Like nicotine patches or something. He suggests they go for a pizza, but he pronounces it like like pizza. Oh, the way he says it. It's not even quite like mock Italian. There's something else going on in there. Yeah, I actually wrote I tried to phonetically write down how he spelled it and I can't I can't replicate it at all. He I, probably seems like maybe he hasn't even had a pizza before. Like he thinks it's a cool thing that people do. Yeah, it's this, uh, all the rage. It's like oh, I could have some chips for my starter. Oh dear. And she does basically the same thing again, doesn't she? She says, oh, I'm going off to the change room and then sneaks out. <laughs> doesn't um, Glenn also mention that he just sort of keeps coming in the sex shop of, on the off chance of... Uh, Later on, yeah, because of- she bumps into him again and she's yeah. like, why are you here again? And he's like, oh, I've been coming in here daily on the off chance you come back. <laughs> oh, bless. <laughs> so he's just as uh, keen to get his claws in. That's something they have in common. Yeah, because we come back to him, I think, twice more in this episode because he's still waiting for her in the shop and he's like trying on a mask at one point. <laughs> like he's probably just in there until closing time again, like with the <laughs> restaurant, just browsing all the toys in there also she's talking to him and she mentions oh i've got this new neighbor who's a doctor and he says oh you must be careful jill you can't trust doctors they lie they tell you something is cleared up when you know bloody well it hasn't (laughs) we also get this trip into town with calf which genuinely makes me feel stressed because it's so awful same and calf is so excruciatingly polite and just putting up with it it's hard to watch I think this is probably one of the most hard to watch storylines I think I agree in terms of this like in terms of Nighty Night essentially being a sitcom this is the sit that I find it hardest to be calm because it is just so awful and it's it's just gets deeper and deeper and more and more exaggerated in terms of like and it's all just Jill trying to wear her out so that she has a better chance of getting Don to herself. But Kath can't stand up for herself or put her, you know, boundaries at all. And and things like Jill sort of standing by the shop window and really wanting... Oh, I'd like, love why? to have that. Oh. I wish that was mine. <laughs> and it's just the way that like, like Rebecca Front is brilliant in her sort of like like Kath's face whenever I think of her I'm sort of sort of doing it now where she's like oh, oh. like yeah. it just like like scrunching up in this kind of grotesque mask of like oh you know if I just smile along and seem a bit awkward everything will be fine but 
you know, those social cues aren't going to get picked up on. Because this whole situation starts off because Jill invites them around for dinner, doesn't she? And I love how she starts this conversation on the phone with Don by saying, beef, Don, do you like it? <laughs> and he, he says, oh, cats are vegetarian. And she's like, well, I am planning quite a meaty buffet. <laughs> oh, I mean, doesn't it? It's like the the grimmest poetry, meaty buffet. <laughs> and he says, oh, you know, Cass not feeling very well, so she needs to rest so she can make it tonight. And then it just sort of cuts to Jill just in Cass's face, like, hiya, Cass. I think that might be the first time she says it, just yes. completely in her face while Cass is trying to sleep and then insists on taking her out for this, like, girls shopping trip, which is just terrible from start to finish like the way she drops her off and says like oh you know i'll meet you at scott's like kath doesn't know where scott's is she finds out that it's at the top of a massive hill which she now has to wheel herself up and also she's got this uh the dog attached to her as well and she's already told jill that she's uncomfortable around dogs she says something about oh i once had a an incident with a german shepherd and jill goes were you wearing a skirt <laughs> Just like you said before, the ideal, uh, the, the MRA's ideal woman. Yeah. <laughs> Kath must have brought that attack of from course. a dog on herself. Whether She's it's dressing provocatively for a German shepherd, of course. Exactly. And they go to this cafe and when she brings over these two coffees and two cakes and says £5.40, Kath is like, oh gosh, like it's weird that was expensive at the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, that would be like one coffee now. Yeah, exactly. But like, oh, £5.40 for two coffees and two cakes oh, honestly <laughs> and then i think this is the first case of jill getting money off her and saying you know otherwise it just gets nasty like 20 quid off her for petrol, petrol and, and far too much and then kath bizarrely has bought her this jewelry like i don't know why she felt well, the need she managed to it's yeah. so weirdly generous considering how horrible jill has been to her already i know they barely know each other at this point mm. but it's still a weird move for her to make and of course jill is like oh i didn't mean that one i, I really hate it i don't like it at all kathy and it just goes on and on and Kath's like okay well we can take it back then and jill like to make it even worse just drives herself over there and lets Kath go in her chair. <laughs> just it just gets worse and worse. And but by this point Kath does actually seem like she's getting a bit wound up because she says she's sort of so out of breath and she's like, yes, just have it, just have it. And she's I think at one point she actually says, um, a lift would have been nice. Like she's starting to get a bit wound up. Yes. But still not as much as a normal person would do by no. this point after everything she's been through in this day. So the dinner party and <laughs> Jill is like preparing the food while cleaning like dog poos off the floor. Oh, it's horrible and disgusting food again. You know, there's the meaty platter where there's a, what is it, a ducky tongue. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's uh, ox, lamb, deer, sheep, <laughs> duck. Uh, is uh, is in the selection? I think. Uh, and are they all? Are they those actual meats, or are they all the tongues of those animals? Because she, oh when god, she, I hadn't even thought. Because when she hands it over to Don, she says, um, "Could you stomach a bit of tongue?" And then she, you know, reels off this list of meats and then gives him a ducky tongue. And I, I thought the other day, like, are those the meats, or are they the tongues of all those <laughs> different animals? Like, is it a tongue platter? It is a. I think you're right. I think it, <laughs> that hadn't even occurred to me. Oh, God. Because, of course, she's into awful. And picking up all of that dog shit off the floor as well. Like, she and Linda are weirdly sort of made for each other, thinking about it that yeah, way. Grotty and horrible. Yeah. yeah. I think when I watched this show when I was about probably like 14, 15, like I didn't 100% sort of get it at the time. I didn't dislike it, but I kind of, I watched it once when I was that age and then I didn't revisit it until quite a while later. And yeah. I think it was this sort of like dirty, grotty stuff that made me feel really sort of uncomfortable. Yes. Like certain images really stuck in my head, like as if it sort of traumatised me and made me think, oh, I don't want to watch that again. Absolutely, because this is part of the kind of like it being almost like a comedy horror. Like this is the stuff that's gruesome and gross, like body body horror stuff, like it's slapstick mm. or it's awful, it's tongue. it's But still with that kind of like dark spin on it like something like the league of gentlemen as well 
Mm. And later on, like the image of Terry when he's in that nappy. Oh For some God. reason, that really stuck with me over the years, even though it's not actually that long. That is something that made me feel really like, oh, nighty night, that's a bit uncomfortable <laughs> yeah for sure and I think that that is that thing where you don't necessarily realize how shocking it is until you see it and I agree yeah there was definitely a lot of stuff that went if not over my head stuck in my head and stayed there for a while that wasn't necessarily funny at the time but mm. coming back to it, it is just like a cacophony of uh, grossness and when she serves the meal we get the uh the smashed prawns in a milky basket the podcast title <laughs> And oh, I have taken their faces off, Kat, you know, because she's a vegetarian. <laughs> she's made some allowances for her and gives us some horrible meat as well. Like you can't even tell what it is, but she says, oh, it's mostly gristle, Kath. It's fine. Oh, I think the production design is stunning mm. all the way through to create all of this stuff that you just look at it and it's just so, so grim. And the way she pours the extra milk on the plates oh. as well, like... My uh, my boyfriend hasn't seen Nighty Night yet. Um, we're going to watch it soon, but he was in the room when I was watching that the other day. And when she was pouring the milk on the plates, he was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, wait till you see the rest of the program. That's, <laughs> that's nothing like pouring some milk on some prawns. And I love as she's doing it. She pours it on her own plate and just goes, milk for Jill. <laughs> it's so bizarre. <laughs> So bizarre. Yeah, before treat yourself, it was milk for Jill. Milk for Jill. And at another point, she's like, hug for Jill. It's really bizarre. <laughs> Talking about yourself in the third person. Like, oh. <laughs> and before the meal, actually, we get the fact that she shut Kath outside with the dog. Uh, they have this sort of sad little exchange first where they pull a cracker together and Kath loses and she just goes, oh, I was never very sporty. It's like, oh, bless her. <laughs> just apologising for everything. For everything, really. her entire existence. And she gets shut outside and then she calls Don on his, you know, brick mobile phone and he answers the phone and he's like, who? <laughs> he doesn't recognise his own wife on the phone. Oh. And he do, he's not that bothered about the fact she's outside. He's kind of like, oh, where's Kath? But he doesn't seem to actually care that much. No. It's the worst relationship. Horrifically neglectful, yeah. Because at least Jerry and Till... <laughs> Jerry and Till. <laughs> at least Jill and Terry actually sort of talk to each other. And then after dinner, they're sort of wheeling Kath around and she says she doesn't feel well. And Jill's like... <sighs> well, Kathy, you've got MS. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course you're not feeling well. Uh, and then later in the night, she, you know, everyone's gone home and then she goes over the, to their house and is like, oh, I think I found a lump and you need to check me out, Don, because I'm so worried. Just like, you know, topless in the living room. Just, I'm surprised Don goes along with it because he doesn't seem to be enjoying it, to be honest. No, I think there's this weird kind of like, Don and Kath both feel a bit bound by duty. So I think Don's like, well, I am a doctor. Mm -hmm. And I think he likes the fact that he's a doctor. And also it just seems with Jill, she's so persistent. You just think, well, maybe if I just do this thing for her, she'll go away. Because mm. she says to him, what is it you look for in a woman? You know, trying to chat him up. And he just says, a mm, thickening of the tissue and discharge from the nipple. <laughs> and she's like, I meant looks wise. And this is also the point where she describes herself as a widow in her late 20s with a zest for life and a yearning to sing. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really come up again apart from I mean I guess she makes up that Dave song later on but um just a yearning to sing Dave <laughs> Dave and obviously Kath walks in and it doesn't look good that she's just topless and Don is feeling her up they have a bit of an argument and this is where we find out that he has cheated before with this person called Sandra and Kath is like I just feel so ugly and old and inadequate and he goes come on darling you're not old <laughs> Bless her. It's like everyone says the wrong thing to Kath all the time. Like I think in episode one, she, she's having this conversation with the vicar and he says, oh yeah, my wife had MS too. And Kath's like, oh, she looks very well now. And he's like, oh, she died six months ago. I'm with Sue too now. There's this thing about everyone being sort of like interchangeable or the idea that you can upgrade because the Gordon and Sue's relationship is, you know, clearly really quite overtly and inappropriately sexual as it sort of bleeds into everyday sort of church life and tea and biscuits and stuff. And that's it. I, do, I think there are points where you, there's enough to feel for Kath as you 
as we go along because when she does even try and be honest, she's batted back at every point. Mm-hmm. So you think, oh, I understand why she'd just sort of keep herself to herself. And another nice little subplot in this episode is Linda like running the salon while Jill isn't there. We've already talked about the the pedicure, but there's the uh, the tan blaster and they're talking about how it can spray up to 20 miles an hour. <laughs> and Jill tells her like, oh, you know, it's very claustrophobic. I go in there myself all the time and never fail to find it frightening. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. And the customer has to stock up on their breathing before they go in. And then, of course, she's wrapping this woman in cling film as well. The wrap that you go down two dress sizes. <laughs> yeah, they done it on rats. <laughs> and then just leaves this woman there overnight. <laughs> it's traumatising. What's the body count so far from the just the salon to... So far, yeah. And then later we get the uh, the, the fallen lady. Yes. <laughs> Just, yeah, no wonder they get shut down in the end, really. <laughs> she goes to see Terry twice in this episode. And the first time is where she gives him this book called Your Journey to Death. And she says, oh, doc- Dr. Wivel recommended it. And he got one for me as well called Your Whole Life Ahead of You. <laughs> Uh, and she's like scraping his food into the bin and saying, oh, we don't want to feed the cancer, do we? <laughs> Oh, poor Terry. And they're talking about cappuccinos again. And he says, oh, I didn't know you liked cappuccino, Jill. And she goes, maybe I'm growing as a woman, Terry. <laughs> like her idea of just sort of um, bettering herself is just like getting into cappuccinos. <laughs> She's that shallow. And then she visits him again, waking him up in the night and saying, oh, I just feel so alone, Terry. And he says, well, I'm still here. And she's like, hardly. <laughs> uh, I think this is the point as well where he's like yawning in her face and y- you feel annoyed by someone who isn't Jill at that point because yes. that would annoy me as well if someone did that. And he he says to her, well, what's upsetting you? And she's like, well, your upcoming death for a start. I don't think you have any idea how much a funeral costs. Or do you have any other like highlights in this episode at all? I've got two lines written down and that's it now for episode two. I think special mention in this episode for uh, the quote where somehow Jill, like we say, like in terms of like the tan blaster at 20 miles an hour, it's all very frightening. She manages to describe everything that should essentially benefit her in the worst possible terms. Like the euphemisms go right round into dysphemisms and every way she describes something, it manages to be horrific. For example, mine's tiny, like a cat's <laughs> anus. Yeah. <laughs> like how is that meant to be in any way appealing? Exactly. Something else I've got written down for this episode is when uh, Joy's got a cup of tea in her hand and Jill takes it off her and Joy sort of says, oh, that was for a customer. And Jill just says, perhaps you'd like to have a day off from persecuting me, Joy. <laughs> like That seems to be one of those lines that gets quoted a lot because it is quite just you can use it in everyday life. Like, stop persecuting me. We were talking about how there is a horrible lack of nighty night, particularly Jill Tyrrell gifts on the internet. And I feel mm-hmm. like that would be a perfect reaction gif. Yeah, definitely. For most internet I will, exchanges. Yeah, I will look into making gifts because, yeah, when you type Jill Tyrrell into, you know, places where you search for gifts, there's like maybe two. Yeah. So I will get on it. <laughs> maybe by the time this podcast goes live, I'll make some. Um, and also this is the episode where Jill is like carrying around like gravel in an envelope and saying that it's Terry's ashes. Oh my God. Yeah, and all the bits of um, stones. stones and and <laughs> and <laughs> so episode three starts off with the past life session. <laughs> I think this is my favourite scene in the whole series, that, that somehow Jill is leading it and qualified to lead it, <laughs> that it's in a church hall. I mean, we talk about the afterlife, but are we really into sort of regressions and past lives? And again, it's just these really rich descriptions where Jill's got her eyes closed and she's standing up, she's kind of walking around and almost practically physically assaults Kath. But she's, you know, what can, what can you see, Kathy? Busty lady selling croissants, stumpy fellow in the shiny trousers. Is he winking? 
<laughs> I, I mean, run, Dally, and run. <laughs> I love the fact that Kath's going along with it as well. Yes. Like, because obviously what Jill's doing is hilarious, but the fact that Kath is f- just fully immersed in it and everyone around her as well is like one man's crying because <laughs> he's so into it. Everyone genuinely seems to be like regressing into a past life or something. And I think it just goes to show how Kath is sort of looking for literally anything to help her and that when she does end up screaming like it's my fault it's my fault I deserve it I deserve it she believes it on some level it's so tense that is the first scene in the episode as well oh yeah it's just such a climax where she's just like I deserve it I deserve it I'm sorry and then snaps her out of it even though nothing's even happened no and then this is also the episode where this um caro bibbins program gets introduced i mean just as a name caro bibbins how do you come up with that and like the glimpses that we get of it i'm not even sure what they're doing it's like naked yoga or something and yeah it's supposed to help your relationship and what is it like oh she cured herself of a lazy eye Yes, the celibacy program. And yeah, the sort of snatches that you see, because it seems to be quite old as well, like possibly from the 70s or 80s. It seems to be a set of like audio cassettes as well as a booklet. Um, So I love the little audio snatches we get later on in the episode when Kath's trying to listen and this bizarre kind of chanting acapella. Your lily Lily is precious, precious, I will not enter. (laughs) And And every so often that's even quite catchy, so it'll come to me in the middle of the day for no apparent reason. And of course, um, Dawn is not into it at all, particularly the whole celibacy part of it. And because Jill now knows for certain that they're not having sex with each other she sort of turns it up a notch and shows up in her underwear and oh, i'm just jogging off some grief don <laughs> and says to him oh, if you ever need a shoulder to do anything on <laughs> which is just a great so turn of phrase <laughs> they have this couple's dinner party to talk about the program and obviously jill is like furious that she hasn't been invited but yeah. she, of course she shows up anyway and it brings some like uh some peanut grigio <laughs> or it's not even grigio it's like peanut grigio isn't yes. it? and pours it all into their red wine to make some sort of weird concoction like yeah. make your own rosé somehow and i think this is the episode as well where we get the first case of um how many of those have you had sue <laughs> Yes, no one is free from Jill's judgment and wrath. Because I think Kath mentions in this episode the fact that, oh, there's all these glamorous women around, you know, there's Sue. And it's like it hasn't occurred to Jill before that Sue is an attractive woman and might be a threat. Exactly. And then invites Sue over to the salon. And Sue is kind of trying to be a nice friend to Kath, actually, isn't she? She's trying to make Jill back off a bit and is saying, oh, you know, Kath does feel a bit cramped sometimes and Jill, but Jill doesn't get it. And she's like, oh yeah, that'll be the wheelchair. (laughs) Just doesn't register at all that she's doing anything wrong. And they have this awful dinner party. Oh, so awkward. It's like (laughs) such a, it's like Abigail's party Mm. times a hundred. And there's the like basic instinct. Is it basic instinct with Sharon Stone where she takes, she's not wearing any underwear, (laughs) but everyone is horrified it doesn't have the desired effect at all they just want her to leave and you know they're they're trying to be polite about it and saying oh you know we're all very tired and she says um well you do look rough sue but then that chest must be exhausting Uh, similarly at the salon where Sue is round at the salon she's trying to encourage her to have like a breast reduction and says um you're developing a bit of a big girl's hump and oh you know God could come down tomorrow morning and take those off you in one fell swoop. <laughs> Jill is negging there, essentially. Sort of Bridget Jones and Helen Fielding kind of introduced that idea of jellyfishing, mm-hmm. which is between women like a compliment, something that seems like a compliment, but actually has a sting to it. Whereas now it's like looking, this is well beyond jellyfishing. This is negging. This is threatening. Sue says to Jill, um, oh, I'm sure God likes breasts. And Jill says, I'm sure he does, Sue, but Satan likes them even more. (laughs) (laughs) Just in what world is Sue going to have a breast reduction? Just because Jill has told her to. Like, I mean, in series two, I haven't watched series two in a while, but there is a point where 
she encourages someone to have plastic surgery, but then she actually does it herself. Like, I feel like that's kind of a bit of a slight issue with series two where they kind of take it sometimes a little bit too far. Like if this was series two, she probably would give Sue the breast reduction herself like while she was sleeping or something. I think, yeah, it goes full blown sort of melodramatic, giallo kind of horror. And I think it starts to push the sort of more shocking buttons. Whereas, which I still sort of enjoy, but I think with series one, it is just so much about like, language and slapstick and the production design as well i think you just cannot fault it um one particular uh, instance of which um has really stuck with me but i'll wait until we get to that episode to talk about it <laughs> and speaking about language as well the the treatment that she's doing on sue's hair she calls it hot copper fox with a burst of cheddar sprinkle <laughs> I'm not sure if that's what the colour is called or if that's the sort of treatment in general. I don't know. But she ends up with sort of red hair, doesn't she? Which is a bit unusual. She goes to visit Terry, obviously, and he's he's being told by her that his tumour is getting even bigger when in reality it isn't. She says it's the size of a pineapple now. And he's like, but I was feeling better. And she says, I know, Terry, it's the same with the suicidals. They always feel smashing just before they go. (laughs) And she even tells him it's probably been growing for years since before you were born. (laughs) I love how he doesn't even question any of this. You feel like surely... They've probably been married for a while. Like, shouldn't he know that she lies all the time by now? You think, but she managed to just swoop in as the authority. She just gaslights everyone. We also meet Gina in this episode and Don sort of asks her out. And it's so bizarre how his office is just overlooking a graveyard. It's so depressing. Just the doctor's office and it's just right next to a graveyard. And he asks her to go for a drink and a sausage in a basket. When they're in the pub, he says, oh, you know, you've got a great smile, Gina. And it cuts to her and she's not smiling at all. She's just (laughs) glaring at him almost. And she's sort of like, oh, how's your wife? It must be tough with her MS. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I do find it difficult. And she says, oh, I meant for her. And you can see how Don is actually perfect for Jill in that way. Self-centered, yeah. Totally self-centered. Self-centered in a less kind of insane way but I'm it's more like you you feel like you could meet a Don in real life absolutely <laughs> you say that like someone who has met a Don <laughs> maybe a past GP or two of mine yes yeah true episode four by this point Jill has got Don into a lot of trouble with Kath because she's planted these ridiculous pants in his bag to Kath is like what sort of woman wears things like that oh Kathy I would say quite a sexy lady who clearly likes to feel the wind beneath her wings <laughs> just I, I love that we get the, the tarot cards I see Jill Tyrrell was well ahead of the tarot resurgence like just an absolute prophet I think my favourite bit of it, because I'm a bit into tarot because I'm sickening as a person. <laughs> um, and I, I guess this is like an almost sort of tarot in-joke, but one of the suits is called Wands, but Jill refers to it as Nine of Batons. Oh, yeah. So. I Googled that to see if it was a real thing and I couldn't find anything. Right. Look at him there in his little boots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... It's kind of like the past life session in a way because Kath is just going along with it for some reason. You know, maybe it's the religious aspect of it. She's just sort of believing these things. She's, she's open into believing something that's not quite of this world. Yeah, possibly. she's getting emotional. And then, of course, there's the Sandra card at the end, which is just perfect. And <laughs> Kath genuinely gasps, like as if that would be in the pack. As if that's real, yeah. Yeah, Jill hasn't just planted that there. That's just in the pack anyway. And, and of course, Jill. Jill is like, oh, she is gorgeous, isn't she, Kathy? Like shoving it in her face. Mm-hmm. And this is the episode where she's basically trying to move into the house, isn't she? Like she makes Don this ridiculous 
greasy looking fry up and <laughs> talking to Kath at the same time about, oh, I can do some washing. And she picks up these knickers and is trying to like oh. chisel them with a knife. And even Don is like, it's too Put much for him. Yeah, he puts his cutlery down. It's just too much. And when he's leaving for work, she sort of totters up to him and is like, I got you a wagon wheel for break time. <laughs> like she's trying to be his new, prove what a good wife she could be to him. Yes, with all these really quite like sort of 70s ideals. Like I love, I just love the way that Julia Davis picks out this very particular kind of sense of British culture, like with watercolour challenge, like with wagon wheels. She just seems to know what to tap into and what to reference and you just absolutely get what these characters are about. Yeah, sure. And she's still there in the nighttime using Kath's toothbrush. And Kath's like, oh, we probably shouldn't, you know, share a toothbrush because of gingivitis. And Jill's like, oh, don't worry, I've already got that, Kath. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Kath. And they're trying to sleep and she's just at the foot of the bed and then in the bed. <laughs> and they don't realise she's there and Kath turns over and she's like, hiya, Kath, in the middle of the two of them, not wearing any pants. And <laughs> she's like, oh, I never wear pants after six o'clock, Kath. <laughs> so grim. And then the next morning, she's like taking it even further. She's taking things off the wall and putting up new pictures with like you know, just all pictures of people in sex positions. Yeah. <laughs> and she's putting Kath's clothes into charity bags, just trying to get her out of the house, basically. Just but erasing her entirely. Yeah. And Kath is still not really accepting this. Like even when she notices all of the clothes in the charity bags are hers, she's being quite sort of like, oh, you know, we do have far too much in the West, don't we? Like just accepting it. <laughs> This is also the episode where David is home for half term. Save. <laughs> yeah, we Save. get. I'm not sure what her angle is here, like, because she fancies Don. Like, why is she trying to get off with his son as well? It's like she just can't sort of leave any man be. <laughs> yeah, completely. I think she's trying to just manipulate. And that's it. Even if we don't always understand directly what her motivations are, we understand that Jill is kind of putting everything through to her, like master plan for herself and the way that she'll just turn and will just like compulsively lie because she asked Dave what he likes in a lady and he's like oh brown hair and very quickly oh naturally brunette <laughs> and I think there's something interesting like that she does in terms of this happens with Jill Tyrrell and it happens with uh Emma in Sally Forever as well there's this idea of a woman who kind of like sings or dances like so erotically and so in like this muse way that everyone around her can't help but fall in love with yeah, her. Yeah, she just kind of wants everyone to want her, doesn't she? Absolutely. Like when she's talking about, oh, there are men shouting at me in the street. It's like she wants any male attention, even if it's creepy. Absolutely. Because <laughs> it means that someone fancies her. She gives herself this Sandra makeover at the end of the episode, which is just ridiculous, like these like, I don't know, balloons or something. they actual balloons. It's not even like she's trying to push up her own boobs. One of them like pops at the yes. end, doesn't yeah. it? And makes him some beef wellingtons. Again, just a weird food choice. But then still takes like a very 70s sort of, uh, mm. oh, come dine with me with Jill Tyrrell. Can you imagine? But <laughs> she still takes that. the biggest beef wellington for herself. Yeah, she swaps them over like, oh, I'll have the bigger one actually. It's <laughs> so, so strange. And this is why she describes herself oh, as um, <laughs> slim, vibrant lady in her mid-twenties with a lust for life and a flexible spy. I mean, that is the ultimate Tinder bio, is it not? Exactly. Yeah, I, I would, I would, um, I'm betraying that I've never used Tinder now. What is it? Swipe, right? Is that the thing to do? Yes. <laughs> what the kids do. <laughs> also in this episode, when she goes to see Terry at the hospital, on her way in, she takes some food off the trolley. <laughs> She's just, yeah, out for anything that she can get. I love that she's so kind of food-based as well the whole way through. I think there's something really kind of animalistic. Like she's a carnivore mm. like the whole way through. Yeah, incredibly skinny though. <laughs> just constantly eating. And Linda, I suppose, is constantly eating as well. She's always got like a sandwich in her hand. When she discovers that woman who's wrapped in the cling film earlier, she... It takes a bite out of her sandwich while in shock. Yeah, like she manages to keep eating. Yeah, she can't put the sandwich down. And also when she goes to the hospital, she says to Dr. Wivel, um, oh, I bet you I bet you feel like you're back home in this weather. 
it's oh, awful. No. And then along similar lines, she tells Terry that he's getting even more ill. And Terry's like, oh, but Dr. Will said I was getting better. And she says, well, in his culture, they tell you what you want to hear. I mean, look at Bob Marley. Which reminds me a bit of... Um, oh my God, that's... Um, it reminds me of uh, Julia Davis, uh, her like incredible cameo in Phantom Thread. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. So she pops up um, as an aristocrat mm-hmm. and she has a chat with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Reynolds Woodcock. And she is essentially doing this very like anti-immigration oh, sort okay. of rhetoric. And I think that's it. Like, I think the amazing thing about Julia Davis is that she manages to take these really edgy subjects... Well, she manages to take really sensitive and important subjects about like, well, Jill's essentially racist, isn't she? But she manages to not do this kind of like shitty, ironic, edge edgelord kind of humour about mm-hmm. it. And it sort of rarely comes up as well. It's not like a big aspect of her personality. It's kind of, completely she's awful and it's like, oh, of course she's racist as well. Like it's not surprising at this point. Totally. It's much more plausible and she's completely like um, lacking in any sort of redemption. So you can kind of push into her as a caricature and it kind of allows you to say like, oh no, she is like the the summation of all these horrible, and she's a contradiction as well. Like you said, like she's impossibly skinny and yet she's so greedy. Like how does that even even work out. Maybe it's all about jogging off the grief. Uh, This is the point as well where uh, she basically says to Terry, you only got two weeks left. I've booked you into a hospice because they want the bed back. And just one of my favourite things, she says, your tumour's approaching a pumpkin. It's gone off the sides of the (laughs) (laughs) x-ray. And again, Terry just goes along with it. And I love this moment with the nurse where she pops her head around and is like, we're all just so delighted that you're going. (laughs) And he looks so crazy. <laughs> and not only that, there's a banner, there's people clapping. <laughs> Can't wait for him to go. <laughs> oh, he And he's in his pants as well. He looks so pathetic. And she drops him off at the hospice and he says that he is keen to donate his organs. And she's like, I don't think there's going to be much left really from what the doctor said. <laughs> when we go to the salon in this episode, this is where she says to Linda, another quite sort of quotable line. Now, I'm not a malicious woman, Linda, and I will strike down the first person that says I am. <laughs> and she's she's docked half a day's wages off Linda because she's been late. But she says to her, oh, you know, it's only half a day, so you'll still go home five pounds richer. <laughs> she needs to get out of there, doesn't she? Ruth Jones is so good again. She's saying, it's my hen night tonight, but she goes like really close to Jill's face to say it. it's such a strange performance. Um, and this is the scene as well with the, um, can you see to my fallen lady, please? <laughs> and they, of course they have to take her money out of her purse because she hasn't paid yet. And that's tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 50 pounds. Yeah. 50 pounds tip before they call the ambulance. Well, I think one last line in this episode that I've written down is when Jill and Kath are talking about, you know, the fact that Don is a wrong and, and Jill says, it's these bloody doctors, Shipman, Crippin, Fred West. Oh, he was a builder, Jill. Do you call what he did to those women building cats? <laughs> <laughs> Just makes no sense. I love it. Episode five is the the funeral episode. Oh my word. Before we get to that, it kind of starts off with Don coming home from the pub drunk and Jill is in the bed wearing no pants again. <laughs> she manages to uh, stake her, her claim, as it were. I think it's possibly also my favourite I think it's my favourite Jill Tyrrell description in the entire series where she is referring to how she uh, grooms herself, yeah. Netherly, shall we say, <laughs> where she says, you know, winter time, apostrophe or a comma, depending on what you're up to. <laughs> depending on what you're up to. And jo- Don doesn't really care. She's still got the kind of Sandra wig on, hasn't she? Because it's the same night, I guess, Don has gone to the pub and then come home. Yes. And then the next morning, this is where Kathy actually does sort of snap in the end because there's these condoms everywhere. Just like a fit <laughs> to bursting. I don't, what is she even used? Like, what, like milk or something? I don't know milk what for she's. Chill. Milk for chill. And I love this shot where Kath sort of backs into this door and then Jill appears and she's got really wide eyes and she's walking towards her. It's almost like a horror film or something like the monsters appeared and Kath is backed against this door. It absolutely is. It's totally that kind of like horror framing. And I think what's interesting is that, yeah, this is the episode where 
um, Kath actually sort of stands up for herself. But I think what's interesting is it's on behalf of her son. Yeah. And I think there's something quite sweet about that, that... That's kind of the tipping point where she finds totally. out about if she hadn't found that out, like, would she still have just let Jill carry on? Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, that is the point where she punches her because she's just had enough and says, get out of my house, basically. And I like how she leaves. Of course, she has to pretend to fall down the stairs first. Yes. <laughs> uh, as a last ditch attempt for some attention. <laughs> that is the most beautiful, awkward slapstick I've ever seen because she can't quite, and everyone's just silently staring at her, kind of like trying to assemble. <laughs> herself not acknowledging it no. and as she leaves don closes the door and he's got a condom on the back of his head as he closes the door everywhere it's just my favorite favorite production design moment ever and then after that we see her at the salon and she's saying like oh of course don wants to be with me he's got this fire of lust in his eyes and we see that she's just talking to like a, a six-year-old child <laughs> who she's giving a fringe to the even... <laughs> same fringe i think it's like her signature move is like that a little weird stumpy kind of... fringe yeah. and she, you know even though oh, we told mummy that you weren't going to have a fringe but i think it's going to give you an added maturity <laughs> This poor child. And also this great moment with, um, sorry, Joy, I thought you were an assailant. <laughs> Just out of nowhere. Like, that's a line that I see quoted quite often as well. Sorry, Joy, I thought you were an assailant. And at this point, I noticed the sign outside the salon. It used to say, um, appointment not always necessary, but things have been crossed out. And it now says, no appointment necessary. Come in now, please. <laughs> Clearly struggling for business. Yes. People keep dying, I guess. Yeah, we're up to three now, yeah. And, you know, naturally the health and safety inspector shows up, closes everything down because there's so many things gone wrong. There's a picture of a kitten with a load of wiring behind it. Linda is just on great form in this scene, like sobbing on the toilet and... <laughs> It's this kind of glottal whimpering that she does to the health and safety inspector. She knows she's getting found out and just everything over everywhere. And there's quite a strong smell of sewage in here. Like just, oh God, it's so visceral. And again, like a child, because Jill tells her that she's in trouble. She's immediately like, am I going to go to prison? <laughs> like she is absolutely terrified. And they're sort of begging to save the salon. And Jill says, Joy will do anything for this salon. And bear in mind, she can remove her dentures. <laughs> so I don't drag Joy into this. <laughs> Poor Joy. And throughout this whole episode, Jill is just trying to get sympathy. Uh, mm. She keeps leaving these messages for Kath and Dawn saying, uh, I know I'm not allowed to speak to you anymore, but I'm just phoning up to say I've shot myself. <laughs> it's just, and showing up at Gordon's house with a black eye saying, oh, Kathy punched me. I think she uses it as an excuse sometimes, her muscular sclerosis. And Gordon goes, oh, multiple. And she goes, oh, it's got worse, hasn't it? <laughs> so silly. Claiming that she's taken an overdose. And like, oh, I've just been for a tum pump at the hospital. And I took a lethal cocktail of drink and drugs, five blisters of paracetamol and a cup of tea. <laughs> and that's the scene as well where she just casually says, yeah, I've done modelling. People say, oh, modelling, was it dirty? Well, yeah, some of it was. <laughs> like That made me think a little bit of like Dawn and Gavin and Stacey. I feel like yes. that line could have easily come out of her mouth, just a little casual mention of the past. <laughs> strange she goes this is the point where she does go back to the sex shop and glenn is still hanging around hoping to bump into her and she discovers that he's actually quite rich and it's like oh are either of your houses nearby <laughs> and, and as she sort of collapses onto him he's like touching her boob like any excuse and then like and then the the um proceeding fellatio scene which again is just horrible like sex isn't sexy in nighty night it's it's disgusting and, and weird and comic and yeah like a slapstick sort of scene isn't it absolutely so it's hilarious watching and and just again like jill's descriptions where she sort of pulls away and she's so she's manipulating him sort of like withholding and and uh and then not uh, depending on how much he's doing what she wants him to do and to agree to um money wise um but it's just disco a way that, in a buffet <laughs> disco in a buffet 
classic combo. And just the way that she describes herself as uh, her mouth feeling like it's full of crisps. Uh, shards of glass. Like, oh, I just can't carry on. And for some reason, the DVD that I've got on the back cover, one of the pictures is of Glenn's face in this scene. <laughs> like, I don't know <laughs> who chose that. I don't know. But Marketing genius. I know, it's really odd. The back of the DVD is not great. Anyway, like in the description, it says something about... She meets bearded doctor Don Cole. It's like, how is that relevant that he's got a beard? I think it's probably one of the few distinctive things about him because he Maybe. is... Don is essentially an incredibly boring man. Yeah. And not that dissimilar to Terry, just more like Jill. Very sort of like, yeah, passive and self-absorbed, doesn't care about other people. Yeah, there's... When I first watched Nighty Night, and then revisited it later, I didn't really remember anything about Don's personality at all. And it's kind of because he doesn't really have much of a personality. And I think that's part of the joke. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like... This amazing man that she's chasing. No, literally just a new man that's there. Before she's preparing for the funeral and we see her going to the butchers and you kind of think at first, is she going to make, you know, another meaty platter or whatever? But it turns out she's using it as passing for Terry's body. (laughs) And I like, she gives it to the funeral director and says, oh, he did want an open casket. And he's like, no. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely not like oh it's just it's what the hospital gave me that's all that was left um, and the dog is tucking into it as well like oh he still recognises Terry even now um, and then there's that hold of that moment where the dog just keeps keeps eating it. and then she just sort of starts to cry <laughs> and she jumps in front of Kath's car as well just the most ridiculous moment like her face pressed up against the windscreen like oh I didn't know it was your car Kathy and this great moment where she says oh I've lost everything I'll never have children oh really I don't like them Kathy <laughs> <laughs> and then the funeral. I mean, what are your highlights from the funeral? Where like, to start? Well, the, the horse coming in on the horse. I think the horse. I like her whole getup, which I think, looking back on it now, rewatching it, there's definitely shades of Hunderby in that. Another dance routine with Linda's help, of course. I think it's Jill's speech, though. I think my highlight, the absolute highlights of. Jill's speech is um, describing herself as being strapped to the washing machine with a hairbrush <laughs> in my mouth. And then also referring to herself uh, that using this platform to say how um, Don and, and Kathy have made her a social piranha. <laughs> Treating me like a leopard. <laughs> and I am so grateful to Kathy for punching me in the face, throwing me out of the house and trying to run me over. <laughs> Oh, it's just the worst. And there's quite a lot of people there and God knows what they're thinking. I think when I die, I'd like someone to deliver this exact eulogy. <laughs> just, yes. it would be on brand. No, most people would not understand the reference, but it would be interesting. It's what you want. And of course, she's telling everyone they have to chip in, otherwise it gets nasty. And, oh, it's caused quite a whopping dent in my widow's pension. <laughs> and, uh, oh, uh, Terry wanted to be selfish until the end. You know, I wanted to just <laughs> dump him in a bin bag and give the money to the disabled. But Terry wanted this funeral, so I guess, like, blaming Terry and Kath and Don just yeah using this platform to blame everyone else yet again and of course Terry gets out of the hospice at this point and it's really kind of ramping up the tension really because while the funeral is going on we see him leaving the hospice and then he goes to the house finds these invites for the funeral which are like free five pound gift voucher win a magnum of champagne and then goes to see the grave which has just got Jill's salon phone number on it just the best um and I love how at the wake you know they're having the disco in the buffet and there's a cage dancer and I love how everyone is just really into it like having a great time dancing around as if that's just the norm at a wake like of course. of course so the final episode where it all sort of kicks off really she's trying to keep terry hidden you know he goes outside and she throws a sheet over him kath and don come round because they've got these hospital notes that prove terry's still alive but she manages to convince them that he is dead and that's a different terry tyrrell yeah and this is the point where she realizes because I think she's kind of assuming at this point that Terry is going to still die. But 
she's like, oh, well, you know, if he's not getting this treatment, he is still going to die. And Don's like, no, I mean, the Terry in the notes, he's essentially cured. And we sort of flash forward, don't we, to a few weeks later. Yeah, there's this sort of non-linear ending, which is interesting, like to kind of finish off with something that's structurally completely different to everything that's gone before. But it does seem to manage to kind of like ramp up some tension and in terms of comic timing and this flashing scene, back and forward this scene where they're in the bed is one that shows up a lot in the outtakes as well yes. um, he, where he's telling her about um, oh you know don't go in the bathroom uh, you know I've blocked the toilet after last night's lambuna like that, <laughs> I think Mark Gator said that Julia had to actually leave the scene when, leave the room when they were doing that scene because she just couldn't cope and also apparently they shot a lot of this finale in um, Steve Coogan's house at the time because he was sort of vaguely involved with the show via Baby Cow. Baby Cow, yeah. And I'm not sure how this came up. Maybe they ran out of money or it was a last minute thing, but apparently a lot of Glenn's house is Steve Coogan's house from the time, interestingly. Who would live in a house like this? Wow. <laughs> I like the idea that like what sort of go up to like, all right, Steve, yeah, it's Julia. Um, I'm looking for a location. Yeah, it's this completely ineffectual Scottish man's inherited house. Uh, that psychopaths after. I think yours would be perfect. Yeah, there's going to be some deaths in there yeah. from Angel Delight. <laughs> Death by Angel Delight. Yeah. Oh my God. And a combination as well. What is it? Uh, nano nano Chocoscotch. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had Angel Delight in years. Do they still do it? I think we should find out something. <laughs> we should make all of the food from this show like as a buffet because <laughs> there's about 20 different food items that get mentioned throughout the show. It's mainly meat and dairy based. Mm. Uh, yeah, smashed prawns, um, wagon wheel. That would be nice. <laughs> Lots of things in baskets in mm. general. That's Sausage in a basket. Sausage in a basket, kitten in a basket. Mm-hmm. Gordon comes round and this is definitely a joke that I didn't get before where they're talking about how they're going to get married and Glenn says, oh, we're going to be a proper family like the Brady Bunch. And she says, they should never let them out. <laughs> like, I definitely did not get that 10 Me years neither. ago. I, I wrote that down as well because I was like, that's such a good, who does she think the Brady Bunch are? I assume she's thinking of, it's like Ian Brady or yeah, something. Like yeah. that's what I assume. But I think I know people who still wouldn't really get that now because it's quite a, you know, I know people who've never heard of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. It's quite an obscure reference. Yeah, I suppose, yeah serial killers coming up quite a bit actually because before she was talking about Crippin and Shipman and Fred West. Yeah, she's pretty literate in serial killers actually, but yeah. We get a flashback now to the farewell coffee morning <laughs> with the pole dancing to Kylie. Yes. And yeah, I said before, Don often doesn't seem that interested in Jill. This seems to be the point where he is most interested in her because mm -hmm. he is like blind drunk <laughs> and yes. she's dancing on a pole. <laughs> but he is also groping Sue at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> just sort of, he just wants sort of any woman who isn't his wife, doesn't he? Absolutely. Any woman who's sort of more sexual than she is. Yes. And Jill seems to be aware of this. There's all this stuff going on with Terry across the road because he decides he wants to leave the house. Um, He's wearing this nappy and he puts on a little pink dress <laughs> and Linda sees him through the window and is like, he's haunting me in a bra, Jill. <laughs> and this is the point where she actually reveals to Jill that she was the one who she Terry confesses. slept with. Yes. Just again, just wording it in the best way. Like, remember when you went to see Phantom on Ice alone because you thought you might meet Michael Crawford? <laughs> and she and she says something like, "Yeah, I did." <laughs> it's like, what happened there? Get to the point, Linda. And then uh, Linda is discussing how Terry uh, gave her, bought her a curry for the shock, pizza in the park. <laughs> I ate his as well, and then a Chinese for the bus. Ideal date. <laughs> Chinese on the bus to finish off. And I told him he was lovely, and he told me I was lovely, and then we done it. <laughs> and Jill says, where? And she's like, oh, just in the front. <laughs> and then elaborates and is like, oh, in the bed, downstairs, and the cupboard where the Hoover is. <laughs> so specific. Quite a wild night. Don comes around and he's so drunk he can barely like stand up or speak and Jill sees her opportunity mm. 
and decides to kill Terry because it's the only way, you know, Dawn's come around and she's like, well, I'm not passing up this opportunity, mm-hmm. smothers Terry. And then this encounter with Dawn in the bedroom. I love how it's it's framed as this sort of romantic moment, isn't it? Like there's a flashback to, you know, there's the lavender song, the moment where they first saw each other as if it's this lovely moment. But he's like so drunk, covered in sick. Yeah. Like he barely, he barely even knows that she's there and he just sort of collapses on top of her. Whereas she's like, you know, in her sexiest lingerie, like, oh, you look gorgeous, Don. It's so sad. It's basically like, yeah, it's not cons- really consensual, is it, on his part? Because he's so drunk. <laughs> and it's framed as this lovely romantic climax to the series. Because it is in her head. Like, she's got what she wanted. Mm-hmm. The problem is, it's not what anyone else wants because she is fundamentally an abuser. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, at the end, Gordon reveals that he's actually called the council because Jill's just been AWOL for like three weeks and yeah. they all thought maybe she'd killed herself in the house. Because she had threatened to. Yeah, and he says, oh, there's a smell coming from the house as well. She confesses to Glenn and basically says, we're going to have to kill the vicar. Like, it's not, they don't really need to, do they? <laughs> like, no. It's a bit of a leap. Like, oh, we have to kill the vicar and you have to confess and you also have to confess to killing Terry. And because he's just so besotted with her and, you know, dumb, he just goes along with it with the angel delight. <laughs> there we go, femme fatale classic uh, noir he's just sobbing yeah sobbing while eating it (laughs) Gordon's like choking in the room while this weird sort of Scottish like Highland music is playing or it's very bizarre I like the idea Glenn just listens to Scottish like bagpipe music all the time (laughs) just because his personality is Scottish Scottish, yes yeah that's all he's interested in and she says to him How can we have a mature, balanced relationship if I've killed and you haven't? (laughs) And she says it's going to be like Romeo and Juliet. We're going to eat the the angel delight and die together. And of course, he is, you know, begrudgingly eating it. And she's like, what what exactly does she say? Oh, she says, I'm not really hungry, Glenn. (laughs) Just so nonchalant. And he's obviously we know he's not dead because he's in series two, but... As at the time, it seems very much like that's it. She's the only one left alive. And of yeah. course, she calls up Don straight away. And that's how it ends. <laughs> but then we're left with this sort of cliffhanger of like, maybe Terry is alive, but Linda yeah. is dead. And it's when unusual. Did that... yeah. yeah, I hadn't remembered that being the ending. I'd completely forgotten that as well. And I think it's quite interesting because you realise, oh yeah, we don't actually see Linda leave. Like that makes, that tracks. And the thing is, is that even though it did come back for a second series, it's such a perfectly contained series within itself. Mm -hmm. Like she just, Jill just carries on being awful and in like dogged pursuit of what she wants and like just destruction and havoc like wreaked all around her. Yeah, it definitely works as a sort of a definite ending, you know. And I don't think she necessarily plan that there was going to be a series two it from what i gather i think it's something that the bbc asked for mm. and she has actually said like in interviews relatively recently that she isn't 100 happy with series two mm. I, I think she said that she felt like she didn't have that much time to write it and you know it was just a bit of a rush and she isn't too happy with the way it turned out mm. so i think uh, series one does definitely work as this contained thing and you know that maybe at the end Linda is dead you know I think that's it works as an ending because she is annoyed about the affair isn't she of course because there's that arc kind of throughout it and it's interesting because I think a lot of what Julia Davis does which is quite against the grain of peak tv and streaming is she will give you one perfect series same with Hunter B same with camping mm-hmm. same with Sally forever And I think it's because she's more interested in creating something whole in itself, which I really respect. It's not to say that I don't like stuff that has lots of series and there are worlds that I want to stay immersed in. But I think there's something refreshing about Julia Davis in particular, where she is committed to one series. It's not like, oh, we're going to keep making series to like spin money or whatever. That's kind of why 
you know, when I was thinking about doing this podcast, I think it makes sense because she's done so much work over the years. But whereas with some people, that amount of time would be one or two TV series. She's done so many different series because they are, apart from Nighty Night, they're just one series and that's it. Yeah. I'll be interested to see if Sally Forever comes back because it has won awards and stuff now. So maybe there will be a bit of... And it was left a little bit more open. Yeah, a bit of a... Not a cliffhanger so much, but maybe be interesting to see where it goes next. We'll have to see. Yeah. So before we finish, where can people find you on uh, social media? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Benita Emily. Um, I'm also on Instagram, but that's mainly just photos of my cat. So <laughs> that's <but> good. That's, <laughs> yeah, my cat's gorgeous, actually. So come and follow me at Emily underscore Benita. And then if you'd like to commission me to do words, I can make some of them funny sometimes. Mm-hmm. And is there anything you want to plug at all? Just me. So for me, <laughs> you could look you up on Twitter, see what gigs you've got going on and stuff. Yes, please. That would be smashing. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smashed Prawns in a Milky Basket. You can find us on Twitter at Julia Davis QOTD and you can find me at It's Sophie Davis. This podcast was edited by Alex Bondek with original music by Martin Ford and Matt Bond. Next time I'll be joined by Boyd Hilton to talk about Lizzie and Sarah.